morning, a very warm welcome to you all. I feel if I get through the children's address, my toughest task is behind me. <laughs> no, it's a real joy to be with you. As we survey the scene in which we are set, we find that it appears that the culture, the society, the power structures seem to be concertedly against the Christian faith, that which we profess. Society seems to waver between hostility and indifference. The cultural norms seem to call that which we perceive a vice a virtue, and what they perceive a virtue we would see a vice. The power structures are indifferent towards or oftentimes threatened by the Christian gospel and find themselves aligned against the faith, the gospel, the church. What I just described, I think, could be a summary of the 21st century here in Scotland, but I think is also a fair summary of the first century. And as we turn to the letter to Titus, let's read a few verses from the end of Titus chapter 2 and reading into Titus chapter 3. You see, not much changes over 20 centuries. I think sometimes we think if we were in a different place or if we were in a different time, things would be better. Things would be easier. Each place, each time has its challenges of its own. In the first century, Titus was commissioned to bring the gospel to Crete and to the people of that island. The Apostle Paul gave him a clear insight into what it was that he was to proclaim and what it was that he was to expect. This is page 1199, if you have one of the Red Bibles. For the grace of God that brings salvation, verse 11, has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility towards all men. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things 
are excellent and profitable for everyone. Amen. May God add his own blessing to this reading of his word. Simply put, the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ, is a life-changing encounter. When you meet with Jesus Christ by faith, when you place your hope in him, your life will never, ever be the same again. The Apostle Paul has every confidence, not in himself, nor in young Titus, but every confidence in the message that he has been called to proclaim. And I would suggest that if this message can work in this particular place at this particular time, then we have hope in all particular places and in all particular times. There seems to be two cultures in the Roman world that stand out as places where you would least expect the gospel to take root. One was the city of Corinth, a city that was characterized by immorality, what people did that we would say they shouldn't do. It seems that Crete, the cultural norms are quite opposite because the Cretans are characterized by what they don't do. The Cretans are characterized in chapter 1 as those who are liars, they don't tell the truth, evil brutes, they don't behave in an in a honorable way, and lazy gluttons, they don't do much at all except indulge their own pleasures and desires. Now, if the gospel can take root in a place like Corinth, a place of excess, or in Crete, a place of sloth and evil and dishonesty, doesn't that give us hope for today, for here, for now? Because there seems to be two problems in Crete. The first problem is that they are spiritually bankrupt. And the second problem is their spiritual bankruptcy is obvious. Now, there are some audiences and some people who look the part. Some people who can pretend or put on a facade or a veneer where there is a level of respectability, where there is a level of, you know, generally just appearances look good. Whereas that veneer of respectability doesn't seem to be present to any great extent in the island of Crete and among the people that Titus was called to preach to. It just reminds us of how remarkable this situation is, that this new movement, this new spiritual religious movement would ever take root at all, let alone expand, let alone be preserved for 20 centuries. Because this particular religious movement revolves around the claims of one who was roundly despised, rejected, and ultimately crucified by his own people. His own people treated him in this particular way. How do you expect other peoples to treat him? If this doesn't work where the message was expected, how could you expect such a message about such a person ever to take root anywhere else? But couple the message of Christianity with the messengers of Christianity and you have an even more unlikely set of circumstances. Now, if you or I were to begin a religious movement, if we wanted to begin some sort of spiritual 
transformation or reformation, I would suggest that we would choose the best and that we would choose the brightest and that we would choose those who have a standing and a status and a moral uprightness. Well, these tended to be those that were most hostile to the gospel, the morally upright, the religiously respectable. These were the ones that ultimately had Jesus crucified. But this message concerning Jesus Christ, this Palestinian Jew who lived and died and claimed to have been risen from the dead, was now to be transmitted through not the strong but the weak, not the wise but the foolish, not those who have a, who have a testimony of moral uprightness, but those whose character and those whose testimony is quite the opposite. How can such a movement, how can such a message, how can such messengers ever hope to succeed unless, of course, this is the truth of God that is accompanied by the power of God, and that which God promises, God will also accomplish. Because with you this morning, uh, I'd like to just look at these two wonderful gems at the end of chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, and that passage at the beginning of chapter 3, verses 3 to 8, these gems that give to us in, in such a clear and such a powerful and such a persuasive way the heart of the Christian gospel, identifying the key to true transformation. And first, I'd like to notice, and uh, two months ago, I was preaching here from John chapter 1, and I simply summarized the prologue of John under the heading, It's All About Jesus. And my first point today is likewise, it's all about Jesus. The message of the gospel is found and rooted and finds its foundation in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. There is no other message. There is no other help. There is no other hope. And if you look at verse 11 in chapter 2, we see the whole Jesus story brought before our eyes. We're told that for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus. It's all about his incarnation. He came into this world. The grace of God has appeared, and the arrival of Jesus now brings salvation near to all people. But it's not just the incarnation of Jesus. We have the other bookend in the Jesus story, namely the return of Jesus. So the Apostle Paul is saying to Titus and is saying to us that we are now living in between these two bookends in the history of this world, the arrival of Jesus and the return of Jesus. And if you're a Christian here today, those two events shape your life here and now. What has happened and what will happen informs the here, informs the now, and enables you to say no. It enables you to say no to those things that you might want to say yes to, ungodliness, worldly passions. The arrival of Jesus and the return of Jesus also enables you to say yes. It enables you to say yes to those things which you previously would have said no to, that you want to now live upright, godly lives as you wait for his return. So you see, it's all about Jesus. 
and the arrival of Jesus and the return of Jesus has this transformative effect on the lives of ordinary people. So much so that we are no longer ordinary people, we are quite extraordinary people. We have a standard of life that is extraordinary. We have a focus and a perspective that is extraordinary. We have a parameter for living that is extraordinary. That we are placing our lives within the life and work of another. We're saying, I'm living to please Jesus Christ who came into this world. He came to seek to save the lost. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. And I'm living my life in light of what he has done. And I'm also living my life in light of what he will yet accomplish. He's coming back. I want to be ready for that day. He's coming back. He's giving me work to do in the meantime. And I want to do that work. I want to fulfill that calling. And that gives to each one of us a calling a ministry, an opportunity of service. And in a moment, I'm going to get to my second point, but just to preview it, that the gospel is a life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ, but it's a life-changing, life-changing encounter. Because when you meet with Jesus Christ, he now entrusts this life-changing message to you to live out, to speak out. And what tends to happen is when we receive this message and embody this message, the life-changing experience that we have had now becomes a life-changing experience that others come to have for themselves. So you see, there's a multiplying effect. If the gospel takes root in Corinth, there's going to be a multiplying effect. The gospel takes root in Crete, there's going to be a multiplying effect. The gospel takes root in Dundee, there's going to be a multiplying effect in the student halls, in the places where you work, in the communities where you live, among the friendship groups that you associate with. When this change takes place, something happens not just in the life of the individual, but through that individual, this life-changing power, this life-changing transformation takes on human form that people see, that people perceive there's something about them. There's something about us. There's something about this group of Christians that is distinct, that is different, that is compelling, that is attractive. And even though society and culture and the power structures seem aligned against, there's something at work here that we can't really grasp totally. We can't really explain fully, but we see it in action and the world sees in action this life-transforming encounter with Jesus Christ. So the Apostle Paul says that this arrival of Jesus and this return of Jesus now becomes our bookends for living. But not only his arrival and not only his return, but what he actually achieved, verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own eager to do what is good. Can it work? Does it work? Could it work in Crete? Because the Cretans are liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. Is it possible that these can become a people that are now eager to do what is good? Previously, they were eager to do what was bad. Previously, they were eager to do nothing at all except to indulge themselves. 
can this gospel, can this message, can this power of Jesus Christ come to work there? Can this message work here? Can this work now? Can we see the multiplying effect of God's grace in our lives, in our congregations, in our communities, among our friends? In chapter (coughs) 3, the Apostle Paul again gives us that insight into the work and into the person of Jesus by giving us a before and after. And notice this word, us, that seems to permeate. In verse 11 of chapter 2, we're told that the grace of God has now appeared. It brings salvation to all men. God now places a welcome mat in front of humanity, all nations, all peoples, all tribes, all tongues, and says, welcome, you're invited, you can come in. But there's an us here. In verse 12, it teaches us. Verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness. And in verse uh, 3, at one time we, too, were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved. Now this morning, I have to say that there is a separation. And in a gathering such as this, whether large or small, there are some people included in the word us, and there are some people that are not included in the word us. So when Paul says us, and when I say us, or we, what's the distinction? Is the distinction based upon education, how much you know? Is the distinction based upon economics, how much you earn? Is the distinction based upon maturity, how old you might be? Or is the distinction based upon something else entirely? Because you see, the gospel message requires no particular level of education, requires no particular level of economic achievement or advancement, requires no particular level of maturity, but the us that is described here describes a people who have had this encounter with Jesus Christ, who have acknowledged him as their Savior, as their Lord. The Apostle Paul in his letter to the Romans simply says this, that the message of salvation can be summarized in two particular propositional truths. That for you and me, if we believe, if we believe in our heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, and if we confess with our mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, these two propositional statements are completely countercultural. They are completely counterintuitive, and they can only be accomplished and achieved through the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. But if that is your situation this morning, where you can say, Jesus Christ is my Lord, and where you believe in your heart, it doesn't matter what I believe, it doesn't matter what your neighbor believes, but what do you believe? Do you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead? The Bible says that you are saved, and the Bible says that that is the characteristic and the qualification for the us. It really is counterintuitive, because most movements... Most organizations will seek to advance the best, the brightest, the most gifted, the most able, whereas Christianity tends to invert everything. The least able, the least knowledgeable, the least respectable, those who have no status and no standing, it seems to be they are the ones who tend to grasp this message first. And they become ambassadors to others, demonstrating what God has done in their lives. Paul says, here's the before. It's not a particular 
particularly pleasant picture. Foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. Living in malice and envy, hated, hated, and hating one another. That's society today. That was society in the first century of the Roman Empire. That was Crete, where Titus was called to preach. This is not a particularly pretty picture of humanity, but this is the way it is. This is how God sees us. This is how God sees them. He doesn't see those nuggets of joy or peace or love within our lives. He doesn't see the the potential for good within humanity, but he sees us as we really are. Today, many people are looking for freedom. They are looking for fulfillment, but they're looking in all the wrong places. They often substitute one form of enslavement with another form of enslavement, one form of bondage with another form of bondage. But verse 4 in chapter 3, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, again, it's about Jesus. He saved us. Not because of the righteous things we had done, because we hadn't done any, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. These two words are remarkable, rebirth and renewal. In the New Testament, there's only two times where the Bible, the Bible writers uses this word for rebirth. One is in Matthew chapter 19, regeneration, where Jesus is describing when the whole world is transformed, when he returns and everything is made new. The Apostle Paul is using this word of all things being made new, regenerated in the life of the man, the woman, the boy, the girl who comes to believe in Jesus Christ. A new birth, a new start, a new beginning. And if that new beginning wasn't enough, he couples it with this word renewal. Now sometimes, and for the young people here, you won't appreciate this for a few years yet, But when you come to a certain age and you think of renewal, you think to yourself, I would love to be 18 again, 21 again. I'd I'd love to wind back the clock. And the picture here of renewal is not becoming a younger self, but the picture here of renewal is a complete change that everything about us is made new and made better. We have better minds. We have better hearts. We have better lives. We have better desires. It's not about our physical abilities. It's not about youthfulness or beauty. But this change is so encompassing and is so transformative that it's described in language of birth. You have a whole new beginning, and you are made new in all of your capacities, all of your intellect, all of your emotions, all of your goals and desires and and motivations. So you see, it's all about Jesus. But I'd like to say this. For those of us who have had this life-changing encounter, the Apostle Paul now places on us this great responsibility, this great opportunity, this great challenge, that it now becomes down to us to live out these truths here and now. Over two centuries ago, Edward Gibbon wrote one of the most important works of history called The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, multi-volume work. Now, Gibbon was no fan of Christianity, but one portion, chapter 15, of his volume dedicated to the spread and growth of Christianity. 
And he said, he said this, our curiosity is naturally prompted to inquire by what means the Christian faith obtained so remarkable a victory over the established religions of the earth. He had to, even though he wasn't a Christian, wasn't a fan of Christianity, he had to say something was happening here in the first century. Something remarkable was happening in the Roman Empire that this small, despised, persecuted religious minority seemed to quickly conquer the Roman Empire. And one of the reasons that he ascribed to this spread, he said that there was the virtue of the first Christians. He said, the primitive Christian demonstrated by his faith his virtues. And it was very justly supposed that divine persuasion, which enlightened or subdued the understanding, must at the same time purify the heart and direct the actions of the believers. He went on to say, he said, I shall lightly mention two motives which might naturally render the lives of the primitive Christians much purer and more austere than their pagan contemporaries or their degenerate successors. Repentance for their past sins and the laudable desire for supporting the reputation of the society in which they were engaged. Gibbon is saying here, there's something about the Christians It's not just about their creed. It's not just about the miraculous. But there's something about these Christian people. There's a change of life. There's a change of heart. There's a transformation of morality. There's a change of priority. Now, this is where you and I come in. This is where we become ambassadors, where we become illustrators, where we become examples of the life-changing power of the gospel. Many people today who you know, you work with, live alongside of, they're not reading the Bible. They're not here today. But I tell you what, they're looking at you. They're listening to your conversation. They're observing you. They're trying to put two and two together and to see, is there something about him? Is it something about them? Is there something about this community that's distinct, that's different, that's attractive and compelling? The Apostle Paul says to Titus, you've got a tough calling, Titus, here. You've got a tough environment in which to to minister. But I tell you what, that when you preach the gospel and when you see the gospel take hold, what you will see is transformation that is powerful, that is persuasive, and has no other explanation than this that Jesus Christ is a great Savior, that the gospel is that message of salvation focused on Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say in chapter 3 and verse 6 that the Holy Spirit who makes us new and gives us rebirth is poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. These are the terms of the gospel. Sin, guilt, shame is taken away and hope is given in its place. Forgiveness is given in its place. Grace is given in its place. So that now we have hope and now we are heirs. But with this I want to close. Is this trustworthy saying? As you read the three of the pastoral epistles, pastoral letters, First and Second Timothy and Titus, five times the Apostle Paul takes out what you might say as a highlighter or takes out an underliner and says, I want to say something here and I want to emphasize it. And I want to give you this encouragement to highlight or underline this passage. 
This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God, the us, we, you and me who have trusted in Jesus, that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. The Cretans were incapable of doing good. The Cretans were unfit for good works. They were disqualified from doing good works. Why? Because of their culture, because of their society, because of their morality, because of their actions. But the gospel enables them to be zealous, to be devoted, to be equipped to do every good work. What about you? And what about me? Have you had this life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ? And is your life now a testimony to that life-changing power of the gospel? Not perfect, of course. Still many flaws and many failings. I'm reminding of that scene of John Newton. When John Newton was in his 80s, he was still preaching till just before he died. In fact, he was so infirm that he would have a, an assistant who would come up and read portions of the sermon and help him into and out of the pulpit. And many times he was told, Mr. Newton, don't you feel that you're too old? Don't you feel that you are too ill? Don't you feel that your faculties have begun to ebb away? And his, his memory had, had receded. But he said this, there are two things that I remember. I remember that John Newton is a great sinner, and I remember that Jesus Christ is a great Savior. So you see, it's not so much how much you know, but what do you do with what you know? It's not so much what you've learned over many, many years. This may be a new encounter with Jesus. But what the Apostle Paul is saying is when you have this new encounter, you're changed. You're transformed. New style of life, new priorities of living, new motivations, new interests, that now you are able to devote yourselves to doing what is good, and these things are excellent. They're profitable for all people. The good works that you do don't save you, but the good works that you do commend the one who has saved you, commend the one who has given himself for you, and the good works that you do build one another up, encourage one another, and maybe just to say a word on encouragement, how often do you speak words of encouragement to each other? How often do you tell people, encourage people with words? Because I tell you, the journey is tough. And maybe there are too many critics and not enough encouragers. So the good works that are being spoken of here is not necessarily physical labor, but the words you speak, the character of your life, the way in which you interact with one another, and the way in which you take what you hear here and bring it there. So tomorrow morning at your place of work, tomorrow morning when you're at your university or college, tomorrow when you're at school, or tonight when you go home to your family or to your friends, what then? How do you commend this Jesus who has changed your life? What do you say? What do you do? Paul says it's all about Jesus. It's all about the gospel of Jesus Christ. But then it comes down to us. We can't save people. But all we can do is point people in the direction of the one who has saved us. And if our character has changed, our desires have changed, our motivations have changed, then we have a story to tell, that we have a Savior to commend, and we have a credible witness to his grace, to his goodness, and to his glory. So this morning, Paul says to Titus, it's all about Jesus. It's all about the gospel. 
But he entrusts Titus to entrust the gospel to the Cretans, those lazy, evil brutes and liars, those gluttons. The gospel takes roots in unlikely places among unlikely people, so all the credit and all the glory belong to God, belong to Jesus Christ, and belong to the Holy Spirit. All we do is point them to the one who has done so much for us. So may God bless his word to us, and may God take us from this place wherever he places you, and to be those life-changing, transformed people who commend the gospel in word and in deed. And may God have all the glory. Let's pray. Father, it's our prayer that you would accompany with your blessing and with your power this message, that any today who are not included in that word, us or we, that they too might come to know the rebirth and renewal that comes through faith in Jesus Christ, that comes through the work of the Holy Spirit, and that they too might be made alive in Jesus, that they may be made new all over in Jesus, and those of us who have met with him, that we, us, may continue to be agents of transformation here in Dundee. Places we work, places we study. Lord, we are weak, but you're strong. Lord, we are foolish, but you're wise. Lord, we are insignificant, you, but you are all substantial and all significant. So enable us to be instruments in your hands. Speak, Lord, through us. Act, Lord, through us. Show your grace, your goodness through our humble efforts to make you known to others. As we pray all in the name of Jesus, amen. Well, folks, we're going to sing now the final hymn, Hear the Call of the Kingdom. Let's join our voices together as we praise God. <laughs>